Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. morning, Horizon West Church. Uh, that prayer, make, I will make room for whatever you want to do, that is the prayer of our hearts, and actually uh, it's a great setup and a great introduction to where we're going to be this morning in our Awkward Conversation series. Um, and so I'm going to jump right in. Uh, we got a lot of ground to cover as well as uh, taking communion a little bit later on. If you did not get the elements for communion as you walked in, there will be opportunity to do that at the close of the service, so we'll make sure to pause for a moment and allow you to access that. But uh, as we look toward this uh, series that we're calling Awkward Conversations, uh, we are today going to be getting into issues of marriage, and uh, that will continue over the next several weeks. And so I want to let you know a mechanism for asking questions about marriage. Maybe you're married, maybe you are separated, divorced, maybe you're single, never married, uh, but you have questions about marriage. And so we're going to ask you to do this. If you've got a question um, and you're not sure we're going to answer it or we don't seem to be answering it, text the word question to 40777. Question to 40777. There will be a prompt there, a really simple form. You can remain anonymous. If you want us to know your name, you can put it there, but you can remain anonymous and just ask the question. And here's what we're going to do at the end of the series, at the end of these next few weeks, my wife Nikki and I are going to sit down and do a bonus podcast episode where we're going to answer several of those questions. And again, you don't have to let us know who you are. I know some of those uh, questions could be sensitive, and we want to wrestle through those things in a, a context that allows us to get a little deeper. Is that cool? So question to 40777 if you've got a question for us. I want to get uh, an illustration on the table, get your mind thinking. Imagine that you're going on a long road trip. Anybody taking a trip with their family this summer or with friends? You've already probably done that. You're getting ready for a long road trip. Well, before you can go... Before you can map out and navigate your journey, maybe you take your vehicle into the shop uh, because you don't want to get started down the road. You don't want to get 100 or 1,000 miles away from home and have your car break down. And so they're going to check things like tires and brake pads, and they might do an oil change for you. And what they're doing is making sure that the vehicle that you're in is suited for the journey that you're about to take. The first six chapters of 1 Corinthians are basically the Apostle Paul putting the car in the shop and saying, Here's what's wrong. Here's the things that are going to not allow you to take the journey of faith because they're going to prohibit you from even getting started. Things like someone sleeping with their uh, father's wife, someone uh, arguing about who's the greatest among them, people boasting about earthly wisdom. So, so this is Paul saying, we got to get new tires on the vehicle. We can't even talk about the journey quite yet. In the chapter we're in today, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is turning the page. He's pulling the car out of the shop. He's now going to say, hey, here's how to navigate the perilous journey of faith. And he's going to begin to speak to serious-minded people. These aren't people that are stuck on issues that they should have already gotten past. These are people honestly asking the question, how do we honor God in the different seasons of life that we find ourselves in? Now, the Corinthians have a premise, but it is a faulty one. Their premise goes something like this. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, necessitates a radical change to my 
circumstances. Now there's a reason they might have believed that. Consider that Jesus, in bringing the gospel to us, left heaven and came to earth and suffered and died. Radical change in circumstances. Consider that Peter, who was a fisherman by trade, ended up being a pastor and a pillar of the early church. And even Paul himself, who's writing to the Corinthians, the one who founded the church at Corinth, went from being a Pharisee, somebody who persecuted the church, to somebody who traveled around the world taking the good news of the gospel to the nations. So the Corinthians are thinking, now that we have become followers of Jesus, now that the gospel has come to us, our circumstances need to change. And here's what Paul is going to reveal to them. The gospel brings a radical change, not necessarily to our circumstances, but to what is inside of us, our character, our motivation, our purpose in life. That is what changes as a result of the gospel. In fact, later in 1 Corinthians 7.20, and in two weeks we'll go deeper into it, Paul will say these words exactly. He says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. It's a very remarkable uh, statement for the Corinthians to hear. I thought the gospel changes everything. Paul's going to say, no, 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 hang on. Remain where you are and let God do the work on the inside. Let me apply this to our circumstances. We've got people at Horizon West Church who are students, teachers, engineers, small business owners, uh, drivers, accountants, marketers. The gospel is not a call to abandon your post and go do something spiritual for God. The gospel says that everything you now do and touch is spiritual. Because the Holy Spirit of God who is in you by faith is propelling you forward in the work that you do, the vocation that you do, to his glory. Now, some of us will be called to be set apart for vocational ministry, church planter, pastor, missionary. But that is the exception. That is not the norm. Normative Christianity finds its, itself in regular, everyday places, letting the light of the gospel shine so that people can see the good news. The Corinthians' question about condition or status in life had less to do with vocation. It actually had more to do with issues of marriage and sexuality. And so that's why we give this disclaimer at the beginning. Paul is going to address four specific categories that a person might find themselves in. I'll go through these quickly and then we'll kind of unpack each one. Paul is going to address these four categories. Those who are single, those who are married, and then the latter two are subsets of of married uh, people those who are married but deeply struggling, and finally, those who are married to an unbeliever. And Paul's going to give some very specific instructions so that no matter where you find yourself, Horizon West Church, no matter where the Corinthians found themselves, they got instructions specific to their season of life. And so diving into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, follow along with me. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement and for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish all were as I myself am, but each one has a gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, we're going to stop there. We'll get into the next verses in a moment. Um, I need to put this uh, aside before we continue. When Paul references self-control in this passage, he is not referring to the idea that this is a, a bad or a sinful thing. It's not sinful for a man to desire his wife sexually. It's not sinful for a wife to desire her husband. What he's referring to is the human lack of self-control that we all have. We have limitations. It's part of the reason God gives us uh, avenues for fulfilling those desires. So first, he's going to address single believers, and he starts with a very interesting statement. He says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. You may notice that this is in quotes, if you saw it on the screen or it is in your, in your Bible or Bible app, which means that those who are interpreting or translating Scripture are understanding this to be something the Corinthians had written to Paul. They were saying, hey, Paul, isn't it true that it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Hey, Paul, isn't it true that you yourself are single and at this point, at least in life, are practicing abstinence? The, the, the Corinthians had made a false assumption that those who are not engaged in sexual relations, even in marriage, are somehow a little more spiritual than those of us who are. And you got to understand the context for this because Corinth was rampant with sexual sin. You could not walk down a street in Corinth, at least a main street, street, and not pass a temple where prostitutes were offering themselves as physical sexual acts of worship to the gods of the Corinthians. So this is the, the soup that the Corinthian church is swimming in. And as a response to that, they're going, sex is defiling, sex is bad, sex is evil, sex is to be avoided at all costs. That's their understanding and their premise. Paul says in verse 7, he doesn't necessarily debunk their basic premise. He says, I wish all were as I myself am. Paul is identifying that singleness is a good thing. To be single and abstinent, which is the assumption for those who are single, provides unique opportunities for the gospel that marriage can sometimes prohibit. For instance, in Paul's own life, his singleness allowed him to go all over the world with no responsibility to a wife or children and to be free to be fully committed to the gospel. I, I know single individuals who have gone overseas and served the Lord in ways that are more difficult for those of us who have a wife and young children, and we have to think through issues of safety and those kinds of provisions. So singleness, Paul says, is a good thing. But here's the challenge of singleness. The same freedom that allows us to be available to the gospel and to the purposes of God can also create opportunities for our flesh or our sinful nature. And so what Paul is going to say, and what I want to affirm as well, is that if the desire for sex is overwhelming, singleness is probably not the right option for you long term. I was almost 30 when I got married, and so I went through some years of being single and going, maybe I'm called to be single, maybe I'm not called to be single, and in full transparency, one of the telltale signs was I didn't want to not have sex for the rest of my life. 
Like that, that was just not, so I wanted to honor God. I wanted to, 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 to follow the commands of scripture and be abstinent as a single man. But the older I got, the more I went, I don't think this is for me long-term. And so in my later 20s, I prayed, God, please send me a wife. And then I met Nikki that year. And so he worked it out. And so, but that was, <laughs> that, that was an indicator to me, singles, younger singles, older singles. Some of you, have a level of restraint or, or just a level of uh, non-engagement in that way that, that makes that not an overwhelming pressure or desire for you. God bless you. Perhaps singleness is the right journey for you. But Paul is going to say, as, as unspiritual as it sounds, he says, look, if you really want to be engaged in a sexual relationship, find a wife, find a husband. That is not somehow less spiritual than those who might remain single. So quick summary on singleness. We're going to go to all four categories. We're going to move pretty quickly this morning. Singleness is a good gift to be used for the purposes of God, but it is not the right gift for everyone. Those who are single, including those who have never married, are widows, or um, those who have been divorced, are called to practice abstinence. That, that is the biblical requirement for singleness for those who follow Jesus. And finally, if the desire for a sexual relationship is strong, marriage should probably at some point be pursued. This is why Paul says in verse 9, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. He's almost saying to the Corinthians, I'll let you have this idea that singleness is somehow better than marriage. It is not better than burning with passion and being distracted from your calling because you can only think about one thing that has a righteous way to be gratified if you were in fact married. We tracking? Let's go to the second category. He's going to start to address married believers. And again, I want to remind you that the Corinthians' view of sex has been skewed, has been hijacked, corrupted by the culture around them. This is why they view marriage as a lesser uh, calling than singleness. As I was preparing for this, it occurred to me that in some ways, myself and others that I've talked to within our church and in the broader church uh, world, Many of us were raised with sex as something that was taboo, couldn't be talked about, or even something that was dirty. Couldn't talk about it with our parents, church didn't talk about it. Anytime sex came up, it was like, ooh, we're not, you know, this is bad, this is wrong. Some of us were taught that true love waits, but when the waiting was over, we didn't know what to do. Or worse, we got into the bedroom and somehow we felt gross and perverted in a marital sexual relationship because our ideas of sex were hijacked. This is what had happened to the Corinthians. Sex to them was dirty. It was, it was kind of a forbidden. Certainly followers of Jesus aren't supposed to do something as carnal as engage in sex. And Paul's going to remind them, and this is in keeping from Genesis to Revelation, the teaching of Scripture, that sex is a good gift from God. I thought that was clapping. That would have been gr a great place to clap. <laughs> Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Let me, let me read this for us. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And then a few verses later, God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was what? It was what? Can I tell you that the everything God had made that was very good included sex. God created it. 
in part for the purpose of going out, multiplying, and filling the earth, but then also for the purpose of satisfaction and fulfillment of human desires. Sex is a good thing. So Paul's solution is not going to be to eliminate sexual experience, but rather to channel it in the direction for which God intended it, which again is a man and a woman in a covenant marriage relationship. So where do we go from there? The key to healthy marital sex, Paul is going to say, is this. It is the idea of mutual submission. Again, Paul Paul is not on an island when it comes to his teaching. He is firmly anchored in biblical teachings on marriage and sex throughout. Remember that in Genesis chapter 2, it says that the man and the woman came together and they were one flesh. And the next verse says, they were both naked and were not ashamed. Why? Because sex is good. This is before the fall of man. This is before it's been hijacked and corrupted. So they're both naked and unashamed, and God's design is that they come together as one new entity. Uh, Paul, later in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verse 21, will say it this way, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And it's no coincidence that his very next teachings are on the relationship of a husband and a wife. Mutual submission is the blueprint for a healthy Christian marriage. And Paul's going to get very, very specific with what that means. Listen to verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, praise God, Paul doesn't stop there. (laughs) Also, likewise, in the exact same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Scripture, Paul, Jesus, all of it, is way ahead of its time in rejecting the notion that women are a subservient uh, somehow species to men and are supposed to simply serve their pleasures. That is the way the ancient world thought, and Scripture said that's not how it works when you follow Jesus. There is a mutuality to it. Let me be very practical in what Paul is saying. In marriage, in Christian marriage, husbands and wives, there needs to be mutual agreement and submission about things like what is allowed in the bedroom as well as how frequently you engage in sex. That is not for one to determine, not for the other to determine. Awkward conversations have to happen. This is, I'm I'm comfortable with this, I'm not comfortable with that. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of very clear uh, guidelines on what we're supposed to do in that regard, but we are supposed to work it out together. That is the most important thing mutual submission. And Paul's going to apply this even further in a very specific way. Listen to verse 5. So don't deprive one another, and again, he's talking about sex, except perhaps by agreement and for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Paul's going to say, and, and again, the Corinthians are going, hey, now that I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm going to be really, really spiritual and holy, and and we're not going to have sex anymore. Paul's going to go, time out. Don't do that. Don't do that. Here's the only condition, the only exception in which you may sideline sex for a time. You do it by mutual agreement. You talk about it. You say, hey, for this X amount of days, weeks, whatever it might be, we're not going to engage in sexual relationship. And Paul says, and it's for the purpose of prayer. Now, the principle, I think, here goes beyond even just prayer. It could be any purpose 
that causes you to be more spiritually and emotionally aligned with your spouse. Here's the reality. Sex is enjoyable and it can be overwhelming. It can override everything else. It can be our solution when things are going wrong. Well, we'll just have sex. We'll just make up. And what can happen if we're not careful is that real intimacy, spiritual, emotional intimacy, is not taking place because physical intimacy is the only kind we have. So Paul says, maybe, not a command, but maybe, wife, husband, you talk and go, hey, let's fast, let's practice abstinence for X amount of days so that we can read a a devotional book together and get through it. Or so we can pray daily at night rather than thinking, are we going to go there? Is this going to happen? We go, hey, let's just pray together. It's not even on the table for a little while. So there are reasons to do that. And Paul's going to indicate that that could be really beneficial to marriage. But again, it is not a requirement He says if it goes on too long, the challenge is there's going to be temptations to gratify in other ways, so be careful around that. So, summarizing his points to those who are married, he says marriage is a good gift to be used for the purpose of God, but not the right gift for everyone. Does that sound familiar? Same as singleness. He says those who are married should engage in sex with each other and only refrain on occasion for specific and agreed upon spiritual purposes. Now that's well and good for those of us and those of you who have a healthy, thriving marriage, but some of you are going, that doesn't even apply to me because we're way beyond all of that. And who Paul's going to address next is those who are married but struggling. I wasn't sure the right word to put here because I think everyone who's married is married and struggling at some level. It's hard. It's difficult. But Paul's saying to those of you who have gone beyond struggling, you're like you're on the verge. You're, you're on the edge. This thing is, is failing and it is falling apart. He's got some instructions. And listen to verse 10 and 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband likewise should not divorce his wife. What Paul is doing here is he's building on the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 19. I want to read these verses for you. You'll hear this uh, ethos in Paul's teaching. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not this way. Remember, in the beginning, it was naked and unashamed. And I say to you, Jesus says, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. I want to highlight some clear threads between the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of Paul, namely this, that the ideal for marriage is always reconciliation and oneness. If you were to come and meet with me or meet with me and Nikki, you say, here, you know, the marriage is struggling and you come and you're like, hey, what are the conditions in which I can get out of this? Like, what's the loophole under which I can leave my spouse? We're going to say, that's not where the conversation starts. The conversation always starts with, how do we fix this? How do we heal this? How how do we bring about reconciliation? Because the gospel is a message of reconciliation. It is in the nature of God to redeem and reconcile things and people. And we've known dozens of marriages who went far beyond anything we could even imagine somebody going through in a marriage and through prayer and hard work and counsel and more hard work found their way back to each other and now have a thriving marriage. 
So we never just go, yeah, yeah, that sounds terrible, just pull the plug. The ideal is always reconciliation and oneness. And yet, Jesus is going to say there is an exception to this when there is sexual immorality. Now let me be really clear. Jesus does not say if your spouse has cheated on you, you should leave. My belief, I think Nikki and I share this belief, the goal is still reconciliation. It's going to be painful. There's going to have to be a lot of humbling on the part of the person who went outside of the marriage. And not just for a few weeks or months, that could take years. But if you do the work, the goal is reconciliation. But Jesus says there is an exception. If sexual immorality, in my view, is persistent and egregious against the other person, Jesus says you don't have to remain in that marriage. The, the harm we've actually seen, scientists have shown, the, the, the impact of a woman who has been cheated on by her husband, it doesn't even have to be in a physical affair. It can be repeated failings in pornography. The impact on a woman's brain is the same as that of a rape victim. You go, oh, maybe that's why Jesus said there are cases in which you may need to get out. And Paul's going to say this, but if separation happens... There's some conditions to it. Now, this gets really, really challenging. There may not be a tougher thing in all of the Bible to unpack and to wrestle with, but, but here's what I'm going to say. What the biblical teaching of marriage does is it always reinforces the ideal of reconciliation and oneness, but it's always going to introduce grace into the conversation. Remember, Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. So if we take too hard of a line of position to say, hey, if a person is divorced, man, they're disqualified. No, 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 the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches something like this, and I'm borrowing heavily from Richard Foster, who says, you know, if you, if you were to have a severe injury to your body and you go to the doctor, that doctor is going to do everything he can to repair the bone, the muscle, the tissue, whatever it is. And there are going to be weeks or months or years of rehab and therapy to make sure that body part functions as it's supposed to function. This is the idea of marriage. And yet in some cases, very rare exceptions, the doctor may say to you, we need to amputate this body part or it's going to kill the whole body. I'm not 100% clear on what the exceptions and, the, and all the caveats are, but I can say this. It is a very rare exception when divorce would be the right prescribed move for a Christian couple, but it would be like amputating a body part. And anyone who has gone through divorce will tell you that that is true. Even when it's necessary, even when in those rare cases it's the right move to make, it is extremely painful. There is a deep sense of loss. There are hopes and dreams and desires that get buried that may never fully come to life again. And if we would just apply that ethic to marriage, that we fight for it with everything we've got, how many more marriages would be able to stay intact? Let me summarize the teaching on those who are married and struggling. Number one, Paul says don't separate from each other. So this idea, hey, I'm going to just go get another house till we work it out. Paul would say, no, 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 stay together and work it out. Stay together as much as possible. He says, though, if separation is necessary, and I would offer to you that in cases of abuse, it is necessary, including abuse of children or, or the other partner, then separation would be necessary. But he says, for a time at least, remain unmarried. I think what Paul is doing, I'm kind of out here on my own a little bit, but, but track with me. 
I think what Paul is trying to prevent is the person who goes, my marriage partner's not very good, I'm going to go find another one. I don't think he's saying that a person who's been divorced is never allowed to remarry. What he's trying to undermine is this idea, well, obviously this guy's no good, obviously this girl's no good, so let me go find a a better Christian man or woman. Paul says, no, 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 no. If you need to separate, you're going to remain single, at least for a time, and then the goal again is reconciliation, not going to find somebody better. Are y'all still with me? I know we're getting kind of deep in the weeds here. Okay, we got one more, one more to go to, number four category, and this one is pretty unique, but there are several people even at Horizon West Church, who this is true of, Paul's going to specifically address those who are married to a non-believer, somebody who is not a follower of Jesus. And he does this beginning at verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 7. To the rest of you I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? I hope someone was praying for me this week as I studied and prepared because that is a lot to unpack. Like that is some difficult stuff and we're going to try to do this together. Let me go to the first one that's kind of a mind bender. In this passage alone, Paul one time says, I'm saying this, not the Lord. And then the next time says, the Lord is saying this, not I. What in the world? (laughs) We believe that all scripture is divinely inspired. It's all coming from God, right? Like It's Paul going, man, I'm getting this from God. We're flowing, but hang on. Let me say this on my own. Okay, now I'm back in. It's not what Paul's doing. My best understanding of what Paul is doing when he says, not I, but the Lord, he's referring, I believe, to something that was specifically articulated by Jesus himself. So this isn't like the Holy Spirit. He's saying, no, the Lord Jesus. Remember, he specifically said this. This is a callback to Matthew 19 on Jesus' teachings on divorce. So when Paul shifts to saying, not the Lord, but I, he's not saying this is not divinely inspired or this is not biblical. What he's saying is, this is a new teaching that I'm getting from the Spirit. It's not something I'm building on from Jesus. Does that make sense? So that's how I understand that dichotomy of what Paul is doing in this kind of language. And what he's addressing is this, as the gospel spread throughout the world, it resulted in marriages where one person had become a follower of Jesus and the other had not. And again, the Corinthians are thinking the gospel changes everything. I can't be married to somebody who's not a believer in the gospel. So here's the question, what do we do if our spouse is not a believer? And here's Paul's answer. You make your best to make the marriage work and you pray for their salvation. That's what you do. Again, we have several instances of this right here at the church. And I believe Paul's counsel for this is not only God's heart for marriage. Yes, God wants every marriage to succeed and thrive. But Paul also sees an opportunity here that the Corinthians are missing. Corinthians are going, how can I live with an unbeliever? They don't pray with me. They don't encourage me. They don't go to church with me. Like, how do I do this? Paul says, Flip the way you're thinking about this. Could it be that God 
has you in this marriage to be salt and light that draws this person to faith in him? Now again, some of the unbelievers are going to want to leave. They're like, this, this Christian stuff is crazy. We've had that too here. I can't get down with this. I'm out of here. Paul says that person's not enslaved. Let, let the unbeliever leave. Now, may not mean you don't go to any counseling, you don't fight, but at some point you go, hey, I'm not going to hold on to this. I'm not going to clutch this tightly. If the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, eventually I'm going to let go. I'm going to let them do that. But the goal is higher than that. The goal is redemption and reconciliation of their soul. Here's what we know, and, and this kind of helped me to, to think through the hard parts of this passage. Here's what we know. No one is saved, or to use Paul's language, made holy because of who they're married to or who raised them. So Paul says, hey, if you got children, they're made holy because you're a Christian. And if you got a spouse, he's holy because he's not saying that somehow by osmosis, your faith gets to them and, and they're saved because you're saved. Paul, again, is calling back to this idea of a permeating witness in the life of your family. This idea that when the gospel shows up, it changes things. That when the gospel shows up, children see Christ lived out in their mother or father, even if the other one is not a believer. And the making holy is the idea that it begins them on a process that brings them to faith and is sanctified, even though it is their choice to make. Same thing applies with a spouse. If they're willing to stay, you stay with them. You make it work. You pray for their salvation. Let me go to a verse, and we're going to kind of wind down this part of the service with these words. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Again, this is Jesus, and Paul's building on it. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its taste, how can it be made salty again? At that point, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a light under a basket or hide it under their bed. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And so in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The Bible teaches that by remaining in relationship with a spouse or with children who are not followers of Jesus, you may have the privilege of seeing that change. But let me be equally clear, you do not have the responsibility. Women, it is not your responsibility to get your husband saved. Not your responsibility to make him come to church with you. Your responsibility is to honor Christ, to pray for them, to do what you can to make the marriage work, and then leave it in the hands of God. The same is true of our children. As they get older especially, our job is not to make them be Christians. You can't do that. But you can be salt and you can be light. I do have one more thing. Sorry, I'm trying to wind this down. This needs to be said because I almost went to my conclusion, but some of you who are single, um, I, I want you to know that even though in marriage between a believer and a non-believer, God can do great things, if you have the opportunity not to marry somebody who's not a follower of Jesus, take it. Like, don't go there. Paul's going to say in his second letter to the Corinthians, his follow-up letter, he says, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And the reason is, what fellowship does light have with darkness? So the idea of missionary dating, I'm going to date lost people so they'll come to Jesus, the Bible would, would not be down with that, okay? That was my, I needed to get that out for our, for our single folks. All right, so summary of, of, of married to a non-believer, here they are. Number one, do not initiate a separation or divorce. 
Secondly, pray for the spouse's salvation and look for opportunities to demonstrate Jesus to them. And thirdly, if the non-believing spouse wants to leave, you are allowed to let them leave. You do not have to chase them down. Okay? And again, all of this is couched in this simple reminder that the gospel is far less about changing our circumstances and far more about changing who we are on the inside. Cool? One month from now, about four weeks from today, I believe, we are going to do something at our John Young campus that I want to make you aware of. We are going to have what's called the wedding day. It has come to our attention that many of you, or many of uh, at our various campuses, are putting off being married for some simple logistical reasons. Namely, I don't have the money, we don't have the money, or uh, we don't know the right people to pull that together, or we can't really find a date or agree on it. So on August 6th, it's a Sunday, after church in the afternoon, myself and all of the pastors of First Orlando are going to be at our John Young campus, and we're going to be marrying people. We've done this before, we're doing it again. So, so here's, here's the thing. If you want information about this event, you can go to the website. It's actually at our firstorlando.com website. It's under our events page. And we're, I'm going to give you two opportunities. Number one, maybe you're in a relationship where you're going... Now, Chris, we're struggling to, to not do things that we're not supposed to do, and it's hard, but, and we know we should get married, but we're not. We want to remove all of that and say, hey, we'll, we'll get you married. We, we'll have pastors that oversee that, that bless that. We'll, we'll bring you into that covenant marriage together, if it's the right step for you. Secondly, at that same page, you can have opportunity to donate things. The last time we did this eight years ago, we had people donate wedding rings, dresses, shoes, suits, ties, the whole deal. People showed up, and they had everything that they needed photography, the whole thing. Nikki shot the last one eight years ago. Whole thing. We want to make it simple. Listen to this. Simple to honor Jesus as followers of his. We don't want to put burdens on you. Well, you can't do this. You can't do that. Good luck. We want to say, no, no, no. Come. Enter covenant marriage, man and wife in marriage, and we'll help you to do that. All right. So all this talk about marriage is going to lead us to somewhere that might be a little surprising. Here's how we're going to close our service. We're going to take communion. How does that connect to marriage? Here's how it connects. When Paul in Ephesians 5 talks about the way a Christian marriage works between husband and wife, he doesn't stay at the horizontal relationship. What he concludes with is, this is the way it works between Christ and the church. Paul even says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so marriage is to be a picture of the sacrifice of Jesus. Husbands were to love our wives the way Jesus loved us. And how did he do that? He took a cross on his back. He walked the miles to Golgotha. He had nails placed in his hands and his feet. He was stripped of everything he wore. He had a crown of thorns placed in his skull. He was propped up and ridiculed and mocked for all to see. And he did that to win his bride, the church. And so this morning, as we enter into a time of communion, if you did not receive the elements, I want you to just raise your hand, and we've got some folks that can come around and give those to you. Just keep your hand up for a minute. Nikki, can you bring me the elements down here? And as she's doing that, I want you to know the the premise. Maybe this is something new or unusual for you. I want you to know the premise of what we're doing. The night that Jesus was betrayed to be crucified, Scripture says that he enjoyed a meal with his disciples. And as they fellowshiped together, Jesus took bread and broke it and gave it out and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And just a few moments later, he took the wine and he distributed the wine among the disciples and said, this 
is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so as we eat the bread and drink the juice that we're about to partake of, what we're remembering is that the basis not only of our marriages, the basis of our entire life is not our good works. It's the grace of Jesus. It's the love of God that sent Jesus to the cross. So would you take the bread with me and eat? And then we'll take the drink and drink together. God, we are a grateful people because we have been saved, forgiven, redeemed. God, what we couldn't do for ourselves, you did for us. For God demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And so God, we remind ourselves again of the body and the blood broken and poured out for us, the the sacrifice and death of Jesus, the resurrection three days later. Our hope is in you. It's the catalyst for why we say, God, I surrender all. All to you I give. God, would you help those who are struggling, be it in singleness or marriage? God, would you help those who are fighting for faith and finding it difficult? God, would you come to our aid and come to our rescue? And may we glorify you with our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service times, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.